Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Mahatma Gandhi shares uh, in his autobiography that in his student days in England, he was deeply touched by reading the Gospels and that he seriously considered converting to Christianity, which seemed to offer a real solution to the caste system that divided the people of India. And so one day, one Sunday, Gandhi attended church services in England and decided to ask the minister for enlightenment on salvation and other doctrines afterward, but when Gandhi entered the sanctuary, the ushers refused to give him a seat and suggested that he go uh, worship elsewhere with his own people instead. So Gandhi left and he never came back. He said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. The conclusion for Gandhi was clear. I like your Christ, but not your Christians. Speaking of Christ, Jesus had some pretty shocking things to say throughout the Gospels. Jesus said things like, love your enemies. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's harder for a rich person to enter heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Shocking things. But of all the astonishing statements that Jesus made in his ministry, I think his words from John chapter 14, verse 12, from which I derived our sermon title for this morning, may be the most absolutely astounding of them all. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, quick poll, show of hands, how many of you have ever walked on water? How many of you have ever calmed a thunderstorm or fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes? How many of you have ever raised someone from the dead? I suspected uh, some of our uh, physicians, nurses may have raised their hand for that one, so I need to clarify, I'm not talking about performing CPR, not resuscitation, I'm talking resurrection, someone who is dead, dead, like three days dead. Brought him back to life. Okay, seeing no hands for any of those now, I have a question for you that will set the stage for the rest of this sermon. What are these greater works then that Jesus is calling us to, me and you? Because Jesus wasn't just talking to his first century followers here in John 14. He said, whoever believes in me. So, last poll, raise your, actually, I got one more after this, but raise your hand. If you believe in Jesus this morning, raise your hand. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, especially not in church. Okay, all right. So, if you believe in Jesus, if you raised your hand, you are supposed to be doing greater works than Jesus did. So, what are they? What could they possibly be? What could possibly be greater than miraculously healing the sick, feeding the hungry, raising the dead? Well, this morning, I think we're going to find the answer in Acts chapter 9, verse 32, stretching all the way to chapter 11, verse 18. 78 verses. This is the longest passage that we will examine together in our study through the book of Acts. And I'll just tell you this, fair warning up front, I did decide uh, yesterday, halfway through prepping for the sermon, that I'm going to have to break it up into a, a two-parter, um, so your bulletins you won't get to complete this morning. Uh, we'll have to hold off on finishing the second half of chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11 until next Sunday, so that's just a, a, another kind of teaser to get you back next Sunday if you're new. But the sheer amount of biblical real estate that is devoted to this passage, 78 verses, I think is intended to point us to its relative importance. 
In fact, I would argue that what we're going to see unfold over the next 78 verses is the second most important event in the life of the early church after Pentecost and Acts 2, and it's arguably the single most important event in the history of the church for you personally. Okay, last poll. Raise your hand if you're not Jewish. Okay, that's most of us. That means this story is, I think, the single most personally relevant, important one in all of the book of Acts for you. Because without it, you and I, none of us, we will be sitting here this morning worshiping Jesus. It would have remained, Christianity would have remained a small inner sect of, of Judaism. And so quick recap, Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus commissioned his disciples to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, they have witnessed in Jerusalem. They did that immediately after the Holy Spirit descended, empowered them in chapter 2. They've witnessed in Samaria. Philip sparked a great revival there back in chapter 8. They've witnessed in all Judea, the very edges of the Holy Land, from Gaza in the south, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, to Damascus in the north, Saul's conversion uh, there. And so now all that is left is the ends of the earth, like the rest of the earth, the nations. And so chapters 9 through 11 here are going to be the gateway and throw the door wide open for that explosion of the gospel into all the nations. But interestingly, having now spent the last two Sundays examining the conversion of the, and the early ministry of Saul of Tarsus, the spotlight now shifts in the second half of chapter 9, the end of chapter 9, back to the apostle Peter. Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul, will unarguably be the greatest missionary to the Gentiles in church history, but he's not the first. That is an honor that God reserves for Peter. Why? That's an interesting question to ask ourselves. Why? Well, perhaps it was for the sake of the mission's credibility in the eyes of the church, We'll see in chapter 11 next week that many of these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they had some serious reservations about including Gentiles in their Jesus movement. But the fact that Peter, Jesus' rock, his number one you know, disciple, included the Gentiles, that must have carried weight. Or perhaps God chose Peter for the sake of the Gentiles. News of Peter's ministry had probably traveled beyond Jerusalem by this point, so maybe the Gentiles were more apt to receive the gospel from Peter. But I think that more than anything else, what we're going to see this morning is that God chose Peter for the sake of Peter. Because God's mission to the Gentiles needed to have credibility, not just in the Gentiles' eyes, not just in the rest of the church's eyes, but in Peter's eyes. And because the Gentiles to whom Peter was sent to preach, weren't the only ones who needed a change of heart. Peter also needed to be converted, in a sense. Not to Christianity. He's, he's saved by grace through faith. But he needed to have his heart changed to see people, all people, and to love them like Jesus does. And guess what? Here's the thing. The story this morning, it's not just about Peter. It's for you and me as well. We need to have our hearts changed to see them and to love them like Jesus does as well. Kent Hughes says, Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news. But here, six years after the cross, or six years post-cross resurrection now, the Christian movement still remained distinctly Jewish. In Peter's case, despite all of his love and devotion for Christ, his unfortunate attitude toward the Gentiles could have strangled his ministry and reduced Christianity to just another sect of Judaism. But this text, here's Hughes' exhortation to us, this text has as much to say to us as it did to Peter. How do we look at those around us? And so as we work our way through Peter's story this morning, that's the question I want to invite you to continue asking yourself. How do I look at those 
around me who have not yet been reached by the gospel. Let me pray as we open our study of God's word. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and a light unto our heart, that through your word you show us your heart, and it is your word alone that has the power to change our hearts and to give us a heart after your own heart, a heart to see people and to love people the way that you did and proved in your son Jesus. God, would you help those of us here who are Peters, who know you personally, but might not yet have the urgency and the passion to take the knowledge of you, to take the good news of you, of Jesus, to those who are still far off from you. Would you give us more of your heart to see the lost, the hurting, the broken in the way that you see them and to reach out to them and include them in that way. And Father, would you especially, I pray, touch the Corneliuses here this morning, those who are far off from you, who do not yet know you personally as their Lord and their Savior. Would you help them to see this morning not just your heart for the nations, but your heart for them personally. Would you help them to see Jesus this morning in his love for them, a God who loved them so much he would step off the throne of heaven for them. God so loved the world that you gave your only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Would you give life to a sinner this morning through your son, Jesus, I pray in his name. Amen. This passage is God's answer, as I said, to the question, what are the greater works to which Jesus has called us as his followers? And so here is your three-point outline uh, in your bulletin there. First, we need to recognize what they're not. Second, we're going to establish what they are these greater works, and third, next week, we won't get to this one, third, we will identify next week the obstacles that prevent us from actually doing these greater works to which Jesus has called us. Okay, so what aren't they, what are they, what keeps us from them, these greater works? So, number one, what aren't they? Well, for starters, our greater works than Jesus did are not healing the sick. I think that's the the purpose of the four verses there. Uh, from verses 32 to 35 in chapter 9. Look with them, uh, at, uh, w- with me at them. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came also down to the saints who lived at Lydda. Lydda was approximately 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. See on the map there. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. This is a great work that Peter did, no question. But not greater than Jesus. Jesus did greater. Because in John 5, Jesus healed a man who'd been paralyzed not for eight years, but for 38 years. Moreover, in Luke 5, Jesus healed another lame man, Not just physically, but spiritually. Jesus said, I got the power to forgive sins, the authority to to heal his soul eternally. And so that's why Peter's healing of Aeneas here only merits four verses. Luke is emphasizing, I think, that healing the sick, while wonderful, those of y'all in the healthcare profession, praise the Lord, bless you and your ministry. Physical healing is important, but it's not the greater work to which Christ has called us in his word. Nor even, 1B, is raising the dead. Consider the next story, verses 36 to 43, story of of Dorcas, Tabitha. Now there was in Joppa, now we're another 12 miles northwest of Lydda, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Her name means gazelle in both Aramaic and Greek, and it suited her because she was graceful. She was gracious, 
In those days she became ill and died, though, and when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Oh, we, don't, we, we know you have the power to heal. Maybe, just maybe, God will work a miracle. We know Jesus. We saw Jesus perform resurrections. Who, who knows? So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing him tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made them while she was still with them. But Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and prayed, and turning the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. Now, in any other book, this story would be like the climax of, I mean, this would be the focal point of the whole thing. It deserves its own book right? And there is no shortage of books. There's an entire industry of books out there devoted to retelling the stories of people who have technically died and claimed to have glimpsed heaven and then been resuscitated, sent back down to earth. Heaven is for real. Uh, to heaven and back, touching heaven, flight to heaven, proof of heaven, miracles from heaven, 90 minutes in heaven, nine days in heaven. If you were fortunate enough to die and be resuscitated, you were set for life, the rest of your earthly life. Because I'm talking book deals. I'm talking speaker circuit, uh, the whole nine yards. But here in the book of Acts, despite being one of only 10 resurrections in all of Scripture, this story about Dorcas gets eight verses. Eight. Why? Because once again, I think Luke, the author of Acts, is emphasizing for us, still not a greater work than Jesus. After all, of those 10 resurrections... In scripture, Jesus was personally responsible for half of them. He performed three of them, Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and his friend Lazarus. Then he, of course, ex personally experienced a fourth, the most important of all, when Jesus died and was raised from the grave. And then even Jesus' death before that precipitated a fifth resurrection when the saints in Jerusalem rose from their graves. And so sorry, Peter, but even raising Dorcas from the dead, still not a greater work than Jesus. But we do get this little foreshadowing glimpse here, I think, of the greater work that is to come in chapter 10, right here at the very end of chapter 9, when we read that Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. You say, I don't get it. So he Airbnb'd with a taxidermist. What's, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. Tony Morita explains... A tanner was rendered perpetually unclean by the Jews because he dealt with dead animals in order to convert their skins into leather. Kent Hughes adds, Tanners were ostracized and had to live at least 50 cubits outside of town. Rabbinical law stated that if a betrothed woman discovered that her fiancé was involved in tanning, <clears throat> she could break off the engagement. So what is God doing here, sticking Peter in this tanner's house for many days? God is preparing him, preparing his heart for the greater work that God is about to do through Peter and inside Peter in chapter 10. So let's read on. What is the greater work? Verse 1, chapter 10. At Caesarea now, in Caesarea, 31 miles due north of Joppa, <clears throat> right along the coast, but moreover, more importantly, this is the capital of of the Roman occupation of Israel. So Caesarea is right on the edge of the Galilean border with exclusively Gentile territory, and so the Jews hated Caesarea. They called it the daughter of Edom, a place of ungodliness, a symbolic name for Rome itself. So many Roman soldiers stationed there occupying the Holy Land, but this was all because it was commonly accepted that the Jews hated Gentiles. That's what it boils down to. It's just what, what they did. And those uh, Jews hated Gentiles. Jewish midwives were actually forbidden from aiding a Gentile woman 
in childbirth because she would be helping to propagate Gentile vermin on the earth. But Caesarea is right here on the brink of Gentile territory. And so that's where we are in Caesarea now. Uh, And there was a man, we hear, a Gentile man named Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman Gentile soldier of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, we need to pause there and note, importantly, as Marita does in his commentary that I'll read, that though Cornelius was a religious man, he wasn't yet a regenerate one. Cornelius was like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the man to whom Jesus spoke those famous words of John 3.16 that I prayed just a moment ago. In that, Cornelius, like Nicodemus, was pious and respected, but as Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not enough to be pious and respected. You must be born again. Even a good man must be a radically converted man. The gospel isn't just for irreligious people then. It's for religious people as well. And so Cornelius needs to hear the gospel. He needed to hear the gospel just as much as irreligious people did. Because the gospel, Romans 1.16, is the only power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also, Paul will tell us later, to the Gentile. And so, it's the power of salvation. You've got to believe in the gospel to be saved, to be born again. But how can this Gentile believe in the gospel unless someone preaches it to him? And how can someone preach unless they've first been sent? Romans 10. And so God is about to send Peter here. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, Cornelius saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. All right, let's keep reading. Almost simultaneously with this is the next day now, but while they're en route from Caesarea to Joppa to find Peter, we're looking for Simon, also called Peter, he's staying with a tanner, do you know him? While that's going on, verse 9 The next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop, Simon's housetop, about the sixth hour, noon, to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, said, what God has made clean. Do not call common. Now this happened three times, and then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now what in the world is going on here? We're going to spend the rest of our time figuring that out, unpacking it. Uh, God appears to Peter in a trance, in a dream or a vision, as he often does elsewhere in Scripture. You think of Jacob's ladder, Old Testament, or God's calling of the prophet Samuel, God's appearing to Joseph, telling him not to divorce Mary when she's pregnant with Jesus. Lots of examples, both in the Bible as well as present-day examples. 
God appearing to people, Jesus appearing to people in dreams, visions. But Peter knows enough to understand that even such a revelation, allegedly from God, must still be tested by God's word. Because God does not contradict himself. So if you try to tell me this today after the service, you know, Pastor, I feel like God spoke to me and told me to leave my wife, my kids, go marry this other woman. I'm going to point you to Matthew 19, and I'm going to warn you. I don't know whose voice that was. Maybe it was Satan's. Maybe it was your libido. I don't know. But I can tell you conclusively it was not God's voice because God does not contradict himself. And so 1 John 4, 1, we've got to test the spirits by God's word to see whether they are from God or not. Now, to Peter's credit, I think that he's trying to test the vision of this sheet that he's received. I think he's trying to test it because Peter was a good Jew. And so he was very familiar with the Old Testament law, with Leviticus chapter 11, the Old Testament kosher dietary restrictions. And so even though Peter's up there, you know, he's, he's been smelling probably, you know, the tanner, he's probably got all sorts of great, you know, meat there. Uh, he's been smelling, he's super hungry, and, and he sees this sheep coming down from heaven carrying the most delicious coconut shrimp you've ever dreamed of, and bacon-wrapped scallops, and bacon-wrapped pork tenderloin, just every, anything wrapped in bacon is automatically 10 times better, as we all know, but it's also forbidden, right? And so when he hears Peter eat it, he replies, no way, God. I, I don't know whose voice that is. He probably thinks it's like the serpent's voice in the garden. Eat the fruit. Right? Just eat it. He's thinking, no way, God, because I know Leviticus 11. It's unclean. This is why studying the whole Bible. Now, in Peter's defense, not written down yet canonized. But Peter was there when Jesus said this. He should have remembered Mark chapter 7, where Jesus had already declared there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Therefore, Jesus declared all foods clean. Peter has missed out on six plus years of good bacon eating already at this point. That's, that's what happens when you don't listen to Jesus. You miss out on blessings. All right. But you and I know that this isn't just a vision about bacon, is it? This, this isn't just about bacon. Peter doesn't know about Cornelius' vision yet. The guys haven't found the house and found them up on the roof yet. But we know, we know that this is really a vision about Gentiles. Hughes explains the four corners of the sheet correspond to the four points of a compass, north, south, east, west. The sheet's contents represent the swarming millions of people that populated the earth. Now, billions, we could say today. Billions that populate the earth. Cornelius, his soldiers, his servants, all the Roman people, all other nations on the face of the earth, all mankind bound up together in this unholy sheet. This is a vision about the greater work to which God was calling Peter and to which God is still calling you and I today, brother, sister. Number two, it is the work of evangelizing the nations. This is the greater work Jesus was referencing. And he, he couldn't do it because there was no gospel to be preached yet. You can't preach Christ crucified and, and raised for the power of sin to forgive sins because he hadn't, you know, when he's saying this in John 14, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. We get the privilege, the honor, the blessing of blessing others with the good news and the hope of what Jesus has done to make a way for them to be reconciled and to live with God forever now because of his death and resurrection. That's what this story is about. Reaching all people, all people, all nations with the good news of Jesus. It's the work of making disciples of all the nations. Panta ta ethne, Matthew 28, 19. It's the work of being Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth, Acts 1, 8. Of preaching the gospel to all of creation, Mark 16, 15. That's what Peter is being called to here. Or rather, 
what he's being reminded of his having already been called to six years ago. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go make disciples of all the nations. When Peter and his fellow disciples turned apostles, they were once disciples, i.e. followers. Now they've been commissioned as apostles, i.e. sent ones. They've received this great commission to go all the ethne, but they've not yet gone to a single Gentile for six years. And so Peter's reaction here, his visceral reaction, his face, what was on his face when he received this vision from God, it explains why? It explains why they haven't gone. It's because Peter is holding his nose. By no means, Lord. I, I don't, I don't want to be defiled by that which is common and unclean. Gentiles. I suspect that by the second or third occurrence of this vision, Peter was starting to realize it's not just a vision about food. I think that God was speaking to his heart. I think Peter knew God was already touching his heart. This is about not just bacon. This is people we're talking about. But it has been so ingrained in him. Peter's been so indoctrinated to despise Gentiles all his life. Just stepping foot inside a Gentile's house was considered to make a Jew unclean. Or so they thought. See, that's the thing. The Pharisees had added all kinds of laws, these oral interpretations of the law they had, they had piled on and put on par with God's actual revealed law in the Torah. It's true, yes, that God had given his people Israel his law in order to consecrate them, to set them apart as holy unto himself, as different from the other nations around them. But over the centuries, the Jews had forgotten why he did it. It was so that he could bless those other nations through them. God was purifying for himself a people that could then go and be sent missionally to bless others and purify them. That was the covenant that God had made with Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you, Abram, so that you will be a blessing to others. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But here are Abraham's descendants some 2,000 years later in Jesus' day and Peter's day, not looking for ways to bless the other nations, but instead inventing their own laws to avoid even having to associate with them. And that's why the Jews in Jesus' day were appalled by Jesus. Jesus who would go out of his way to bless Gentiles to heal a different centurion's servant in Matthew 8 and then praise that centurion for his unparalleled faith. I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. Jesus who went out of his way. He sailed all the way across the Sea of Galilee just to meet with one demon-possessed Gentile man and heal him who lived, oh, by the way, in a cemetery in the middle of a pig farm. You want to talk about unclean? But Jesus declares what God has made clean, do not call common. And he's not just talking about bacon, friends. He's talking about Gentiles, believers, who Jesus wants to make clean by washing them, by washing us, all of us who raised our hand, all the Gentiles in the room, washing us in his blood. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And God is making it abundantly clear here, that's not just a promise for the Jews. As a matter of fact, if God's people had been listening and paying a little closer attention, God's heart for the nations, for the Gentiles, same word in Greek, ethne, nations, Gentiles, ethne, it was there all throughout his word, even the Old Testament that they had available to them. And so I just want to spend the rest of our, our time this morning showing it to you in his word. I don't have slides for all these, but if you want to write down the references and check me later, you're like, I thought God was just about Israel in the Old Testament. I don't know. Go ahead. Write down the references. Go study it out for yourself later. God is showing us his heart for the nations all throughout 
his word, especially the New Testament. I don't even have time for the New Testament. I'm just going to run you through a quick overview, just some of selected excerpts from the Old Testament. We can't hit them all, uh, but here, here we go. The most obvious parallel, I think, to this story is the prophet Jonah. Jonah, who, of course, could relate to Peter's revulsion here at the mere thought of being contaminated by unclean Gentiles, when God called Jonah to go preach to a people that he reviled, the Ninevites, he didn't just hold his nose. Jonah boarded the first ship he could for Tarshish, headed in the opposite direction. And even after Jonah spent three nights in the belly of a whale, that's what it took to change his heart a little bit. I mean, just a little, just enough. He got spit out only to go preach the most pathetic sermon you've ever heard in your life to the Ninevites. I mean, just half-heartedly, repent, but don't, you know, but yeah, but God told me to tell you to repent. And God uses, in spite of Jonah, to spark a great awakening amongst the Assyrians, the likes that have never been seen before or since. Jonah's reaction was what? To pout. He pouted. God had to reprimand him for wanting the Ninevites to die and burn in hell because God makes it clear, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, that I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, not even wicked Gentiles, but that they would turn, come to saving faith in me. But the story of Jonah, that's just the tip of the iceberg that is God's heart for the nations. So let's back up now. Uh, to, to Genesis 12. We'll start with uh, a, the covenant with Abram. Just after God's initial covenant with, with Abram, he reiterates those promises to Abraham's son, to Isaac, in Genesis 26, verse 4. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then to his son, to Jacob, Genesis 28, verse 14. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God even wants to get through to evil rulers of these Gentiles, rulers like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, to whom God says, for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And while we're on that story, why did God make his people stay in slavery for 400 plus years in the first place? God tells us why. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. In other words, God was so patient, giving even these Gentile Amorites who had moved into the promised land after Israel had to escape the famine and go down to Egypt and the Amorites moved in, uh, God was so patient giving the Amorites every possible opportunity to repent and turn and trust in him that God wouldn't let Israel go back and forcibly retake the land from them until the Amorites had sinned so much that they deserved every bit of the conquest narratives that we read about in the book of Joshua. Such was the patient heart, the merciful heart, compassionate heart, forgiving heart of God for even these wicked Gentile nations. And when God did finally lead his people out of Egypt, have you ever wondered, why did he let uh, Pharaoh chase them all the way to the Red Sea? Why, that whole thing, I mean, God could have just led them around the Red Sea and saved them that whole, you know, stress between a rock and a hard place. Why did he do it? Exodus 14, 4 tells us why. God foretold to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue you and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God did it as a witness to the Egyptians. They worshiped their Pharaohs as gods. But here is Yahweh saying, uh-uh, I'm the only true God and I want you to worship me. I want you to know me as your God, Egyptians. That's what he's doing there. And every time Israel rejected Yahweh as their God, you think about Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf. You think about Numbers 14, the story of the spies being sent out to spy out the promised land. And then they come back and they're shaking in their boots. And Moses had to intercede because God's like, what am I going to do with these people? I'm just going to kill them. And Moses says, no, don't do it. What is his appeal to God? How does Moses argue with God? He says, if you kill this people, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say it is because the Lord was not able to bring his people into this land that he swore to give them. In other words, Moses is saying, God, think about the witness to the nations that that will be. I know you're about your getting glory in all the nations, 
but this will bring you disrepute on your name in the nations. Don't do it. And even when God rightfully does end up punishing sin, like the sins of the nations, think back to the book of Joshua and commanding Israel to, to, to destroy the Canaanites. We hear these stories of grace coming out of it. Stories like uh, the, pro, uh, the uh, prostitute Rahab. You know, when the whore is the most righteous person in town, then you know you are dealing with a wicked people, right? And yet God spares her in his mercy. Rahab, you think of Ruth, a Moabite Gentile who God also redeems, both of whom, Rahab and Ruth, by the way, will later appear in the direct lineage of Jesus. These Gentiles, unclean, and yet God wrote them, wove them into the story of his own son. You may remember from Sunday school the famed wisdom of King Solomon, most wise man to ever live. But do you know, you remember why God made him so wise? 1 Kings 10 tells us the Queen of Sheba, this foreign Gentile ruler, she heard rumors of Solomon's wisdom. And so she decides she has to see for herself. She pays a visit and she ends up worshiping God, Yahweh, the one true God, for how he has blessed Solomon and his people Israel through him. Here again, Israel is being blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to make you wise so that others will see your wisdom and worship me. In Solomon's temple, why is there a court of the Gentiles? Because God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, Isaiah 56. God's heart for the nations is why he punishes his own people. Israel, Ezekiel 36, God says, uh, I will vindicate my holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. I raised up you, I consecrated you to be a people holy unto me so that they might look at you and see the salt of the earth, the light of the earth, the city on a hill. But instead, you've profaned my name. You've told a lie about who I am. And you've whored after foreign gods instead. And so now I'm going to punish you so that the nations will know that I am God. That's verse 23, Ezekiel 36. So that the nations will know that I am God. God's heart for the nations is woven all throughout the poetry and the Psalms. Psalm 96, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. Psalm 67, may your way be made known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Not just let Israel, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. God's heart for the nations is the eschatological hope to which the arc of redemptive history is bending. Isaiah 43, all the nations on that day shall gather together and the peoples assemble. Let them hear and say, it is true, for you are my witnesses, Israel, declares the Lord. I've raised you up as my witnesses so that they might be gathered in to me. Isaiah 66, the time is coming to gather all the nations and tongues and they shall come and shall see my glory. Zechariah 8, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Passage after passage of God's heart for the nations. And if you're falling asleep right now because I'm just rattling off a bunch of scripture uh, right in a row, that's because you don't have a passion for the nations like God does. You don't yet have his heart for the nations. We're going to talk more about this, as I said, next week. About, okay, if that's our calling, if that is the greater work to which Jesus has called us to preach his good news to all peoples, all people groups, and all nations, what does that mean? What is an ethne? I'm going to talk about that more next week. And what's standing in the way of that? We'll talk more about that next week, but for this morning, I want to leave you with just two things. First, by way of challenge, and second, by way of encouragement. Every sermon should leave you feeling a little challenged, but a little encouraged too. So I want to do both. First of all, challenge application for you. 
Kent Hughes, you remember, he claimed that this text has as much to say to us as it did to Peter. So I want to invite you this morning to consider what is God saying to you through this text? Who are the people and the people groups that you most struggle to love? That you are most tempted to call unclean, unworthy of being reached, grabbed by the power of of the gospel, God's love. Who, if God called you, I want you to share my love, to incarnate, to embody my love for that person, for those people, you would be most tempted to say, by no means, Lord, and hold your nose and board the first ship for Tarshish. If this were youth group, I think back to my youth pastor days, you know, you always got to make this tangible for you guys, right? And, and give you something you can kind of like uh, feel and, and touch and sticks with your mind. So you, I just let you envision this, like Peter's sheet. If it was youth group, I'd have the ushers come in, my youth leaders come in, and hand out napkins at this point, at the end of the sermon here. And I'd invite you all to unfold your napkin, get your four corners out, and then to write down the names of all those people and all those people groups that you again, are most tempted to call unclean, common, by no means. Maybe your LGBTQ neighbors, Democrats, Trumpers, Marxists, white supremacists, Russians, illegal immigrants, the homeless, welfare queens, Karens, image bearers of God. And then I would read to you Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, and I would remind you that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, by nature a child of wrath, rebelling, rejecting God, just like the rest of mankind. And so then I would have you take out a bigger marker, and write your name, biggest letters of all, right down the middle of the napkin. Because Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. We all belong in that unclean, filthy sheet. But then I would encourage you by reading the rest of Ephesians 2 where we hear the good news of the gospel. That Jesus died even for a filthy Gentile sinner like you. Paul says, remember that you were separated from Christ in your sins. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is the gospel that while you were yet a sinner, unclean, Unworthy in that sheet, Jesus didn't hold his nose. That he stepped off his throne in heaven and came down and entered into our mess, your mess, to save a sinner like you. To reconcile you to a holy, clean, perfect God by the precious blood of his son, Jesus. And now, brothers and sisters, Christ's mercy and his kindness toward us is meant to inspire us to turn around and bless others with that same grace and love. So let me ask you this morning, who is the Cornelius in your life who God is calling you to serve as a Peter for this week? Their hearts can't be changed by the power of the gospel from rejecting God to embracing him until our hearts are changed by the gospel 
from rejecting them to embracing them. Let me say that again. That's pretty important. I want to write it down, come back to that. Their hearts cannot be changed by the power of the gospel from rejecting God, alienated, far off, to receiving him, embracing him, being accepted by him. Their hearts can't be changed until our hearts are changed from rejecting them to embracing them, loving them. So loving the world like God did that he gave his only son for them, for us, what will we give for them to show them his love? Now that should be challenging to you. So let me leave you with an encouragement now. When you do fail to do this perfectly, or even to do it well, maybe, when you fail to love like Jesus does, to love those who are most unlovable in your eyes, but most needing of love in God's eyes, when you fail to love them like Jesus does, and you find yourself going back to those old patterns, those old ways of thought, of of judging them, looking down your nose, holding your nose, condemning them, that Christ has called you to love and serve and evangelize, calling common what God is wanting to make clean, then you can be encouraged by verse 16 here. That Peter had to have the vision three times before he finally got the message. I don't know if you know this, if you know the story of the Bible enough to know. Peter was kind of hard-headed. He was a slow learner. And so if that's you this morning, you can take comfort knowing that God chose one of the slowest learners to be his rock. (laughs) I mean, this is a guy who denied Jesus. He had to deny Jesus three times before he got it. Uh, Jesus had to ask him, do you love me? Three times, feed my sheep. And here he is, he's got to get the vision three times in order to get God's heart for the nations. But God is going to keep, I'm going to keep preaching it, and God is going to keep speaking it to your heart until you've got it too. God wants the nations, and he wants to use us and the church to go get them for him. But when you mess up, like Peter did. You know, Peter, even after this, remember, Peter's going to, years later, Peter's going to slip up again. Galatians 2, Paul's got to reprimand him for, for excluding the Gentiles again from his lunch table. And you'll mess up too. And you'll fail to love people well again and again. But brothers and sisters, that's, that's when we fall back on the gospel, on the good news That the gospel is not the good news of our love for God or our love for others. It's the good news of his love for us. That while we were yet sinners, God didn't hold his nose. But he has justified us, cleansed us by the precious blood of his son, Jesus.